0: Podcasting from London, England, at the President Hotel here, recording the podcast after two days of intense conference activity. The Canadian Mining Symposium is back at Canada House after, I guess it's been at least two years. So I guess it's like, you know, maybe three years ago, and I'm just guessing off the top of my head, but I guess in 2020, we did not have the Canadian Mining Symposium in the And so anyways, it was great to see the team. It was great to see everybody, all our mining friends. It was pretty funny. Our event producer, Laura Daly, I didn't realize I hadn't met her in real life. I felt like I'd known her so well already that I just was like, oh hey, Laura. And it's like, but we hadn't met. So anyways, we're still we're still going through this post-COVID reopening amazingly, a year later. And it was a really great event. And it took place at Canada House, which is a beautiful location right at Trafalgar Square there, right across from the National Gallery, which I haven't managed to go to. You always have these great expectations and great hopes of all the things you're going to do. And the reality is, is you don't do any of those things. And you're just trying to get everything done that you need to get done, such as this podcast. So welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I welcome you back. And we have a wonderful guest here today. I took her aside. So first, what happened here was on Monday, we had the Canadian Mining Symposium. And then today, As I record this podcast, we had the Mining Legends speaker series, and one of the panelists I took aside to learn more because it was quite fascinating. Christelle Kupa, who's founder and CEO of Uhusiano Capital, I asked her if we could do an interview on her work, which was working in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and also in London where she's based, and she is basically working on ESG from... You know, uh, you might say an inside perspective from inside the Congo. And I thought it was just a wonderful opportunity to dispel many of the myths, very simple views that we have oftentimes of say what a country like Congo is like. I I think a lot of us out there, our preconception is that the Congo is an uninvestable place, that you shouldn't be investing there, that your money is too risky and it's full of strife and it's just The uncertainty is too high. So it was wonderful to interview Christelle Kupa and to hear the reality. And we're all about the reality here at the Northern Miner podcast. So anyways, it's a fabulous interview and we appreciate her giving her time during the Mining Legends speaker series. And we recorded it in the foyer. So anyways, uh, big congratulations to the team there for putting on a wonderful show. Once again, and thank you to all the guests that came and to all the investors who came. It was fabulous to see you all in person. So, you know, zooming out in the larger world here, I mean, it seems like this China thing is starting to, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I saw it on, I think it was Sunday, on the way to the airport from Berlin, Berlin. I started seeing some pretty interesting reports, and interestingly enough, it was on YouTube from Lay's Real Talk, and she sort of deciphers what's going on, just what you might call a citizen journalist, and it was quite fascinating when she compiled all of the different protests, and when you saw all of them together, you started to think there's a problem on the Chinese government's hands here. But then the next day, then I saw all the mass media was jumping on and saying how this is Tiananmen Square Part 2 or way worse. And I started to get a little bit more concerned that maybe this thing wasn't going to have legs. That I remember there was one, you know, protester who was saying, go away, CNN. And it was a really interesting comment because, oh, well, don't you want CNN to cover your protest? But I get the sense that when the West covers China like, you know, this is the next Tiananmen Square, or this is way worse, that all of a sudden this gives a talking point to President Xi to go out there and say, see, this is just another PSYOP from the West, and that, you you know, don't buy into it, and, you know, we've got everything under control here, and we're making little adjustments here. And then, yeah, and then, you know, everybody can get your, I guess it's the Chinese shot, Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so anyways... Let's see what happens, but I guess, you know, it it also goes to show this whole idea, you know, of these certain bets. Like, we kind of have this certain bet right now that commodities are going to go up for the next 10 years no matter what, and that copper in particular is going to go up no matter what. But if we look at copper here, let me just bring it up. Let's see what copper's at. You know, it's at $3.64. So I guess it's, you know, it's just kind of hanging in there. It feels pretty neutral. So gold is at $1,764. Silver actually is quite buoyant at $21.18. And so the commodity markets don't seem to be overly concerned. If we look at oil, oil is down. You know what's kind of interesting about this market? It kind of looks like a decent market. I mean, the S&P is like a little below 4000 That doesn't sound horrible. You know, what is that? Like 10% off the all-time highs? That doesn't seem that bad. Oil is not too high. Bonds are coming down 3.737% on the U.S. 10-year bond. The U.K. bond is almost at 3%. It's at 3.115%. So that is coming down nicely. I mean, I talked to the photographer at the Canadian Mining Symposium, and she lives in London, and she was saying as a result of the mini-budget – that occurred with Liz Truss, that episode, that her friends are now paying £600 more a month for their mortgage. £600, and it's probably all interest, right? Like, they're probably just paying higher interest rates. So I didn't ask too many details. Like, I guess their mortgage rolled over right at that point. I can't imagine what that would be like. Again, I didn't ask for details on that, but that was the anecdote. So anyways, we have a wonderful show here and some very fascinating news stories, such as Australia following in Canada's footsteps on being more assertive on foreign investment in critical minerals. So, you know, like, again, the trend is towards confrontation here. People are not making friends out there. So the uncertainty continues. It seems like it's going to be an uncertain decade. So with that... If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and also on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, VW warns soaring EU energy costs render battery plants unviable. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com, and we have been discussing this. And it's kind of clear as day, I think we just mentioned this story last week, that they canceled plans to build a factory. So let's see what this news story says here. Investment in German and EU industrial projects, such as battery cell factories, will be unfeasible if the region's policymakers fail to control ballooning energy prices in the long term, the head of Volkswagen AG's namesake brand said. And we have a quote from VW brand chief executive officer Thomas Schaefer, who wrote Monday on LinkedIn, quote, Unless we manage to reduce energy prices in Germany and Europe quickly and reliably, investments in energy-intensive production of new battery cell factories in Germany and the EU will be practically unviable. The value creation in this area will take place elsewhere. Now, to editorialize here, like, wasn't this written in big bold letters for months now? I mean, I don't think anybody that listens to this podcast, or frankly, almost anybody that reads the business news, this should not come as a surprise to anybody. The fact that the VW CEO has to go out there, has to go out there and say this, to me is a—it's pretty late in the day. It's November 29th. I mean, this should have been clear in, arguably, by May at the latest. I mean, again, if you disagree, feel free to leave a comment here, but... So November 28th, this story came out. Let's continue here. An outline for industrial policy cooperation hatched by the French and German economy ministers last week, quote, falls short in crucial areas and does not address the envisaged priorities, Schaefer said. So I guess this is why it's coming out now, is the politicians got together and... There is a real disconnect, I think, in Europe between the politicians and the business community. Again, it's quite surprising and shocking, frankly. Let's see if we have any more information here. Europe's energy crisis is compounding pressure on how to respond to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, President Joe Biden's climate and tax law that aims to boost domestic production of electric cars and reduce reliance on China for battery components and materials. European Union officials have said that subsidy program violates WTO rules – and discriminates against non-U.S. companies. And continuing on, according to Schaefer, the EU's programs don't focus enough on the short-term ramp-up, scaling, and industrialization of production, criticizing what he called, quote, outdated and bureaucratic state aid rules. Volkswagen plans to have six battery factories in full operation across Europe by 2030 under its battery company PowerCo, which broke ground on its lead plant in Germany in July this year, and signed a $3.1 billion joint venture with Yumacor in September for cathode material production. So the writing is on the wall. I guess the politicians are thinking this is just the best we can do. Are they assuming that the business community can just make do with 3 or 4x the energy prices that they had before if things don't get worse? And here they are pushing this price energy cap, which maybe it works, but my bet is this backfires. You know, I mean, and so what do these guys do then? Like, I mean, and here they are mucking around with this oil energy cap, you know, so who knows? I mean, again, I'm just pontificating from the sidelines here. What do I know about all these things? But it's just a little, you know, I I mean, put it this way. If again, Volkswagen has to come out here and say, listen, we're not doing business here. If you guys don't fix your energy situation, uh, this is not good enough and not even close. uh, We're going elsewhere it tells me that there is a disconnect here continuing on uh, this is the story we alluded to in the introduction australia this is reuters via mining.com, australia to become more assertive on foreign investment in critical minerals so of course you know in the last month we've seen canada what i would using what i would consider very heavy-handed tactics to force chinese investment to divest from canadian critical minerals pretty major move from the you know free markets of the Western world. Here we see Australia seems to be following suit. Let's just take a quick look here. Top lithium supplier Australia is set to become more selective about who it lets invest in its growing critical minerals industry. Treasurer Jim Chalmers said on Friday, Australia, a major supplier of mineral keys to the energy transition like rare earths, has more to gain by encouraging investment from allies to build up its critical mineral processing industry, Chalmers said at a conference in Sydney. And we have a quote, foreign investment is a good thing when it's in our national interest. But as investment interest grows, and as the sources of that investment interest grow, we'll need to be more assertive about encouraging investment that clearly aligns with our national interest in the longer term. So we might say not as heavy handed. Now, you also wonder from another perspective is how much is Australia being asked to do this by, say, the Americans? Because there was another comment here, and this is Chalmers again, quote, to put it as simply as I can, our international friends need to rely on someone, so let's have them relying on us. So that suggests to me that there's also this issue of lithium supply and where are these batteries going to get made? And just the last two paragraphs of this article by Reuters is actually super interesting, particularly in the context of this program. What we've been saying here about Canada should no longer be happy to accept itself as just a simple, quote-unquote, middle power. Listen to this. This is the article. Australia is revising its critical mineral strategy and has been positioning itself as a green superpower backed by its mineral endowments. A green superpower. Those are big words. Now, that is not a quote. That is simply the reporter saying that. But I've never seen a quote from a politician, but maybe there have been. It signed a critical minerals partnership with Japan in October and its Southeast Asia economic strategy to 2040 will include a focus on resources, energy, and the green economy, Chalmers said. Pretty fascinating. Here's a story that we dealt with in depth. Two years ago, Rio Tinto reaches historic agreement with Juke and Gorge Group, also Reuters via mining.com. So yeah, I mean, we discussed this story in depth, so I could not ignore it. Let's just see what happened here. Rio Tinto has reached a restitution agreement with an aboriginal group whose rock shelters in Western Australia it destroyed two years ago for an iron ore mine, the group said on Monday. The destruction of the Jukin Gorge site that showed evidence of human habitation stretching back into the last ice age 46,000 years ago caused deep distress to the traditional owners Putukunti, Kurama, Pinikura peoples. I think that whole episode caused deep distress around the world. I felt deep distress on that whole episode. I mean, it made you embarrassed to be in the mining industry if that is what is going on. And at least as far as the story that we, as we understood it, like, is this how we deal with things? Like, you know, again, like, I don't know if this is like a drawing on the wall, but I think it was more than that. Let's not destroy 46,000 year old archaeological sites. It seemed a little deceptive what happened there. But let's not reopen that because it's been a while. And I don't want to misremember that story. So let's just continue on a bit more here. It also fueled a global uproar, cost three senior leaders and two board members their jobs, a parliamentary inquiry, and an overhaul of the mining industry's agreements with Indigenous Australians. Financial terms were not disclosed by either party at the request of the PKKP. Interesting. Which is all of those groups. And there's a quote from PKKP Aboriginal Corporation Chairperson Burchell Hayes. Nothing can compensate for or replace the loss suffered at Juke Gorge, so this is an outcome-oriented legacy to ensure something positive will come from it for years to come. The Juke Gorge Legacy Foundation will focus on education and training opportunities, financial independence through business development, preservation, and an increased voice over heritage, culture, and land, the PKKP said in a statement. And Rio Tinto, Chief Executive, Jacob Stausholm said, quote, we fell far short of our values as a company and breached the trust placed in us by the PKKP people by allowing the destruction of the Juke Gorge Rock shelters. As we work hard to rebuild our relationship, I would like to thank the PKK people, their elders, and the corporation for their guidance and leadership in forming this important agreement. So looks like a case closed over here. Let's see, but uh, at least it uh, sounds like people are on good terms right now which is a sign of hope in this world, my friends. Another story, kind of going big newswire stories here today. LME says it saved nickel market from $20 billion, quote, death spiral. Bloomberg News via mining.com. So I guess the defense of the LME is that had they not intervened in the nickel market and canceled all those trades, that this would have turned into a major financial crisis. Interesting defense, isn't it? Because were that true... One actually does wonder if that is justified. Do the ends justify the means? Let's take a look. The LME has defended its controversial decision to cancel billions of dollars of nickel trades in March as necessary to avoid a $20 billion margin call that would have sent the market into a death spiral and threatened the exchange's own survival. The LME on Monday provided its most detailed account yet of the historic short squeeze this year when prices soared 250% in a little over 24 hours in a filing outlining its defense against lawsuits from Elliott Investment Management and Jane Street. Honestly, like, it does make you wonder, like, how different is this from FTX, then? If they don't have, like, what they say they have, or everything's working on margin and leverage, I assume, right? Like, otherwise, why would they go bankrupt? They shouldn't go bankrupt if they're – so there seems to be some, some kind of leverage here with my sort of Amateur sleuthing here. Let's keep reading here. The document, which describes a growing sense of panic and mounting defaults among members well before the worst of the spike, describes why the LME took the unprecedented decision to unwind hours worth of trading, but may also reignite questions from its critics about why it didn't act sooner. If the prices reached during the canceled trading on March 8th had been allowed to stand, the nickel market would have faced a margin call of $19.75 billion. 10 times higher than the previous record level, the exchange said. At least seven clearing members would have gone into default, and the crisis had the potential to create a death spiral, according to Adrian Farnham, the CEO of the LME's clearinghouse at the time. In that scenario, LME Clear would have incurred a loss of $2.6 billion and would have had to seek retributions of at least $1.22 billion from the remaining clearing members. That, in turn, would have probably have caused a further five clearing members to default. It's like a whole house of cards over here. The LME said in the filing, quote, resulting in the LME being unable to function as a venue for non-ferrous metals markets and posing a significant systemic risk to the wider financial system. Elliott and Jane Street are seeking a total of $500 million in damages, significant amount actually, from the LME and its clearinghouse arguing that exchanges acted improperly in its decision to cancel the March 8th trades. An LME spokesman said, quote, the LME maintains that Elliott and Jane Street's ground for complaints have no merit... And are based on fundamental misunderstandings of the situation on 8th of March and the decisions taken by the LME. All the actions taken on the 8th of March were lawful and made in the interest of the market as a whole. The LME will continue to vigorously defend these proceedings. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say their grounds for complaint have no merit. To me, that's kind of overstepping the situation. I think grounds for complaint have merit. The question is do we have to cancel these to basically save the system? Or your system <laughs> lme <laughs> oh well so anyways that's the latest on that one a uh, quick headline here Mali suspends issuance of mining permits until further notice and this is from reuters via mining.com and it says it's working to improve the procedure according to the government in a statement and Here's the quote, the allocation of mining titles is suspended throughout the territory as of Monday, November 28th, 2022. From this date, no applications for a mining title will be received or processed by the competent services. Interesting. And of course, our main guest here, Christelle Kupa, is going to discuss the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo today. So and this is the kind of stuff, though, like she says it's quite investable, but this is the kind of stuff. I mean, Mali's a completely different country. And it's very important. I mean, when I talk to uh, friends that live in Africa, the thing that you kind of hear over and over is, you know, Africa is not a country. Like, it's several countries, and it's massive. And even, like, it sounds like the DRC is a massive country when we hear Christelle Kupa's uh, interview here. So I guess it's time, like, to me, this is a great show for educating us on a little bit more on what's going on in Africa and in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And finally, this interesting story, Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Copper's biggest mystery is finally cracking. The warnings keep getting louder. The world is hurtling towards a desperate shortage of copper. Humans are more dependent than ever on a metal we've used for 10,000 years. New deposits are drying up and the type of breakthrough technologies that transformed other commodities failed to materialize for copper. Until now. In what could prove a game changer for global supply... A U.S. startup says it solved a puzzle that has frustrated the mining world for decades. If successful, the discovery by Jetty Resources could unlock millions of tons of new copper to feed power grids, building sites and car fleets around the globe, narrowing and possibly even closing the deficit. You know, one issue I have sometimes with Bloomberg reporting, we've read two paragraphs and we still have no idea what they're talking about as far as this breakthrough But they do get it in the third paragraph here. At its simplest, Jetty's technology is focused on a common type of ore that traps copper behind a thin film, making it too costly and difficult to extract. The result is that vast quantities of metal have been left stranded over the decades in mine waste piles on the surface, as well as in untapped deposits. To crack the code, Jetty has developed a specialized catalyst to disrupt the layer, allowing rock-eating microbes to go to work at releasing the trapped copper. Interesting. The technology still needs to be proven on a large scale, but the riches at stake are pulling in some of the industry's most powerful players. BHP Group is already an investor and has now spent months negotiating for a trial plant at its crown jewel copper mine Escondida in Chile, according to people familiar with the matter. Freeport-McMoRan began implementing Jetty's technology at an Arizona mine this year, while rival Rio Tinto is planning to roll out a competing but similar process. Wow. So... Let's see what this technology does, but it sounds like just the recovery here. Uh, it sounds like these rock eating microbes can get rid of everything but the copper. Sounds like a miracle. And now let's take a look at metal prices. to metal prices we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week and on november 29th gold is trading at 1750 dollars and 55 cents per ounce that is eight dollars higher than last week silver is trading at 21 dollars and 26 cents per ounce that is 19 cents higher than last week platinum is trading at 1000 dollars and 90 cents per ounce that is five dollars higher than last week Palladium is trading at $1,849.26 per ounce. That is $25 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading down $0.04 at $3.61 per pound. Aluminum is down $0.02 at $1.05 per pound. Lead is down $0.03 at $0.96 per pound. Nickel is higher at $11.45 per pound. That is $0.18 higher than last week. And tin is also higher at $10.18 per pound. That is $0.31 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is a penny lower at $23.24 per pound. And zinc is $0.04 cents lower at $1.32 per pound. What do we see is basically, it looks like treading water somewhat. No big drama here. Overall, I'd say platinum nickel And tin are the standouts being higher, with everything else edging just slightly lower. So the calm is still here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Christelle Kupa, founder and CEO of Uhu Siano Capital. And she is a sustainable finance expert and global impact investor with experience spanning international banking, sustainable investing for developing countries with a strong focus in Africa. And it's a fascinating discussion here, just a real world take of someone who knows, uh, who's actually been on the ground over in the Congo and helps companies basically set up their ESG policy uh, when they are working in the Congo. So it is a very interesting interview. She is a great speaker. So I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Mining Legends Speaker Series here in London, England at Canada House. And today, Christella Koopa, the CEO of Uhu Ciano Capital, joins me today, who is a panel speaker at today's Mining Legends Speaker Series. Christelle, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, good morning.
0: Great to see you. Thank you for coming out and joining me on the side of the uh, Mining Legends Speaker Series. So tell us a- your story. Tell us about what you're up to here.
1: Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to uh, be here this morning and share time with um, with, with the audience and the uh, the organization. I am a Belgian national, originally from the DLC. I've been living in London, UK, for the past 22 years. Um, the first part of my career, I've been working within investment banking, which, you know, Spanish between a couple of big names and then hedge funds then I guess at some point I had a bit of a light bulb moment where I wanted to do something slightly more meaningful to the career that I've built for myself. I worked within the investment space for 14 years and decided to use my skills in what we commonly call now impact investment. So I've been doing impact investment for quite a while now. If I do set the, the time then I can give I give out my age. So I, I will keep that for myself. But for a little while I've been working within the investment um in impact investment space, focusing within really Africa. I started with microfinance, and then slowly by slowly moved into more, I would say, sexy environment in in the space. And the place where I am today is I am working with the mine, with the mining sector in Africa, more precisely in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. We are working with the mining sector to really help them and always also helping the population to help and establish Better EHD practice for the population. My company really focuses at the moment on the S, so really the social element. We are working with community in and around the mining sectors. The mining product, I would say that the you know my uh, my partners are working are rare minerals from copper, cobalt, gold, and so on and so forth. Being in the DRC it's very diverse. And we're really focusing on bringing and making those community as an investable solution as opposed to a CSR plus or a philanthropy plus type of, I would say, given community.
0: Fascinating. So are you based here in London or are you in the Congo? Or are you both?
1: I'm actually uh, both. So I'm based here. I've got my family here, but I do have extensive travel to the DRC Congo and uh, specifically in the region of the Katanga and Lualaba region which are in the southern part of the country.
0: This is fascinating and really interesting to hear because we hear a lot about the Congo and, and you're in such a topical area of subject matter with the ESG and the Congo. I mean, you hear about the cobalt and there's also, you hear about the Chinese investment and I guess mines like Ivanhoe mines and, and all that. So. From a big picture perspective, like many of us have heard of there are projects in the Congo, like I just listed here. What is it that most people don't understand about the Congo or might misperceive? Uh, generally?
1: I would say that the misperception of the Congo is that it's a big country where there's just war everywhere. And it's just not the truth. <laughs> it is, you know, we do have problems uh, on the eastern part of Congo, but that's a very, I can actually qualify that as a very isolated issue in the country. The country is very vast. It's a very, very huge country. And if you do take those elements apart, it's actually a country where you can make business. There are multi-billion companies establishing themselves in the DLC. If that was a big war country, I don't think, you know, the likes of Ivanhoe or Kamoa or anyone will actually Take take a take a look at the country. Um, so yes, it is. Uh, I think there is a lot of misperception. I won't say that it's the easiest country to make business, but it's a country where things can happen, and you can make things. You know, you can do things, and it's and establishing businesses and working with other peers and working also with the government.
0: So to state maybe the obvious, then you're basically saying the DRC is somewhere where you could seriously consider investing and and feel good about it.
1: Totally, totally. And it's, it's not only a, a place where you feel good. I think it's a, it's a place where people need to invest. DRC is really in the middle of the green energy transition. And, um, with cobalt, be 70% of the cobalt worldwide resource actually lays into the DRC. So you really can't avoid not investing in the DRC you just have to try to invest in a in a much better way so you know decades and decades ago there's been lots of investment i would say some of the investors are not looking at the population or not looking at the environment they just are there to dig, take and leave. I think the new generation, at least over the past 10 years, I can see there's a lot of mining and even across the sector, people are really looking at the people, at the population and see how they can do a much better job. And this is where myself, we are positioning ourselves uh, with my business partner, of course, um, to really be the bridge between you know, those mining companies international investors and government that we need to really work together.
0: Great. So, if I'm a mining company then and I see some potential or I see some opportunity, how hard is it for me to do stuff? Do you have any recommendations on on that side or are you more just ESG focused?
1: I am very much more EHD focused, but at the same time, it's like any other country. You just have to do your proper due diligence. Um, due diligence can be done also in the DRC. You do have the legal due diligence, You know, financials. You, you do have access to many data as well that you can find. It's Still, you know, very huge country. Not everything is centralized in one place. But if you have the desire to really make and establishing a business, then you can do so. We, for instance, um, we do center Capital and and the fund that we that we've launched called Jami Venture. Jami Venture really is a place and a fund that will be investing with um, international community. So we will bring in international expertise in the region where the mines are operating and we want to bring expertise in the legs of agriculture, renewable energy and any other subject that uh, could uh, help the population to thrive.
0: How important is ESG to the locals? Is it something they talk about or or the government for instance? Is it something that the Westerners come in and they have their ESG principles and really the local government, it doesn't really care as much, or how is it seen from the local point of view?
1: So, I will start with the, with the government. So, on the government point of view, it's very important. Um, it's not something that is just now that people want to do it because just of a feel-good yeah. feeling, um, but it's very much something that um, really kind of has to be done. Business has been operating in a way that they were not looking at population. You know, there's certain, especially some certain certain type of investors just come in and don't bring a job. Job create. They don't do. They just bring their own people in the country. They do that for 10, 15, 20 years. They pack up and leave, and then the population doesn't have anything from those businesses that are actually making a lot of money. So it is something that uh, the government is looking at, but also the population. More and more, the population they don't want to be perceived as just this charitable, um, you know, community where you just, you know, bring bags of rice or just build schools with no infrastructure. People want to become investable solutions. So it's really looking at the long-term uh, and the more as of a sustainable project. So people can, you know, you kind of teach uh, someone to fish themselves so they can, they can go, you know, it's a much more sustainable way. So, yes, it is coming from the population, government. And I think on the international level, people are seeing that this has to be done now.
0: And you say the international level and you talk about people bringing in their people and often this is what's attributed to say China and stuff. How are they with ESG? I mean, I think the perception is they're not very good, but what is the reality at least from what you see?
1: Well, I'm not a political, I'm not a politician, so um I, you know, China has brought a lot. China has been very quick in investing, in terms of you know com- coming in the DRC. I'm I'm just taking the, the case of the DRC because that's what I know. They've they've developed a lot. In true effect, um, we don't see as much uh, care about uh, maybe the population as much as we'd like to see. But I, I would not be the person who will say, okay, Chinese not doing a good job. Uh, they're doing what they do. They, they've got different standards of the way they are operating in certain countries. But I'm sure, you know, we can do better as an international community. And when I say we, the Canadians, the well, everyone can, and, and even the Chinese, we, they can also, and we all in together, we should be able to do a much better job.
0: Okay, excellent. So from your perspective then, you have this really interesting, what I consider a very global perspective, being here in London and also in the DRC. So what is it that you think, you know, the mining community should know? Is there something that you feel like people just don't understand in general or that they should understand?
1: Yeah, so I I think the mining sector has been always a bit of a somber sector, a sector where people have a bit of difficulties to maybe understand how things work. It's very opaque. People don't understand. there's a lot of scandals, especially around the mining, the the child labor, women in mining, you know, they don't have the condition that are optimal to really perform their job. So it is true that in, in a sense, it's a bit of a difficult sector. However... I must say that uh, nowadays, miners as well as operators, as well as investors are really trying the best to really become a little bit more inclusive and also try to avoid at the maximum any bad news really uh, within the sector. There's a lot of technology that has been put in play to uh, target and tackle issues. And yes, I think most of the investors are really looking to do a much better job in general.
0: Excellent. So the people who are outside of the mining sector, I think the Cobalt and the DRC kind of has maybe the most press uh, in a sense. What is your take? Well, you're in ESG and you're in the DRC. What is the reality right now? Are these problems fixed or are they ongoing?
1: Well, it, you can't really change a whole industry in one. You know, doesn't change in one go. There are still issues. There's a lot of organizations that are around the cobalt. To name, I mean, I obviously, won't name a few, but there are quite a quite a few uh, initiatives, European initiative, American initiative, that are in play to really kind of sanitize, I would say, the industry. But of course, at this point in time, as we speak, there are still issues uh, happening. Uh, we are just doing up all our effort together, trying our best to just make sure that this industry is is a cleaner industry.
0: Okay. Excellent. And now just about your business, uh, tell us what kind of services do you offer in a sense if I'm, I guess, it's if I go to the DRC and I want to start a project, I'd probably want to talk to you because you are focused on the ESG side of making things work on a local level. Right. So just tell me more about what you guys actually offer.
1: Yes, of course. Um, with Jammy Venture, we are uh, offering a fund, so we are capital raising for private equity funds, focusing on impact investment in and around the mining sector, bringing actors, bringing agriculture, bringing renewable energy in area when there's not much with the help of the miners and the mining sector in the DLC aside of the fund we also uh, with our expertise and know-how we also do um, advisory on ESG and impact uh, for mining um, we've got small project at the moment we're hoping to develop that more and more because this is it is topical it's not just fashionable it's actually topical it's a need so we are um, open to offer also um, expertise and um, to to um, you know for the community for ESG an impact, and of course, I'm p- myself a business person. I am quite well versed with with government, so I wo- work with the ministers and and other business people. So us if you need anything for the DRC.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, what should people do if they want to learn more? Should they go to your website or should they reach out to you by email, find you on LinkedIn? What should people do?
1: The easiest will probably be the LinkedIn. LinkedIn will probably be the best. And also I've got email, you know, and I'm sure we can, we can always reach out. And what is your website? Uh, Capital.com.
0: Okay. Excellent. Christelle Coupa, CEO of Uhuciano Capital, thank you for joining us here in London at the Mining Legends Speaker Series.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Wasn't that great? Thank you once again. Christelle for joining us today on the side of the mining legends speaker series so my friends thank you for joining us once again on this episode I hope you enjoyed it if you want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next week my friends from london england take care